Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews, and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Brian Camelotic, and today we have with us an old friend, the Managing Director of StormTech, Troy Creighton, who is with us here today to talk about a number of things, but especially the readapting of commercial technology for use in residential settings. The technology we are talking about here revolves around, of course, the management of water. So welcome, Troy. And what a time to be talking about water with the deluge we are seeing across the east coast of Australia. Thank you very much, Branko. And yes, it is an exciting time when it comes to uh, removing water. Surface water removal is our thing. And uh, we're certainly getting uh, <laughs> our money's worth at the moment. Yeah, no, I, I, can, I can only imagine um, this is really not something that is uh, usual or, or, uh, or predictable or predicted rather, or for that matter, good from what I've seen, especially at Lismore. I mean, that seems to be rather rather horrible actually unprecedented is the word that they've been using in the media quite a bit about the uh, weather events we're getting so we'll hear more and more of that in, into the future i feel i wonder i wonder you know troy whether the word unprecedented is going to go the same way as 100 year flood um <laughs> uh, okay so when we are talking about residential technology going into the commercial space can you give me some examples of, of, of what that looks like what that is sure so forever if you think of say a um, large retail shopping center or um, retail district what they plan for and by law they need to do is allow for access and mobility of all people uh, so the aged the infirm um, those that have special needs and that's fairly well developed and the areas they consider there are obviously crossing thresholds using ramps instead of steps um, and also <laughs> given the rain that we're getting now how to control the ingress of water into the building when you've got such large open pedestrian access areas so what you have seen in the years gone by for very very many years would be an entry mat into the foyer of an office or into a retail area these entry mats are basically a recessed mat um, and they're probably say two meters long in the width of the threshold. And the purpose of those is so that people's wet umbrellas, wet feet and so on, have a period of transition from the wet exterior to the dry interior. And they're also looking to reduce the slip hazard liability that they'll incur in those situations. So they're very well-developed systems. Another system, uh, so that you'll see has morphed into a lot of threshold drains, which we invented back in the 90s for, um, again, aged access. So the kind of the StormTech version of the house of no steps. Mm -hmm. uh, other variations you'll see emerging now will be an improvement in the technology of waterproofing systems that were championed by commercial requirements uh, because a commercial building typically will have a more stringent um, inspection requirement on it and it'll be, it'll be doing more work, more constant use than an average residential house. But those technologies um, do, as they mature, 
move into residential for a number of reasons. Another uh, commercial technology um, is the glass curtain wall uh, for facades. And those are being represented by very large format, open um, double glazed, triple glazed uh, glass panels that people are using in more and more high, more high end residential uh, to give you that big glass curtain wall look. And then the necessity of keeping the interior of that uh, building stable temperatures so you don't get a lot of condensation on the glass. And another commercial application, most people that have been to the uh, Opera House in Sydney um, will remember that the uh, massive pavers that they have in the forecourts and at the entrances to the, the pedestrian areas of the uh, Opera House uh, were one of the first commercial uses of pedestal supported paving. So you can have the pedestals are up 150 mil in the air and they're supported on each corner by a pedestal underneath. And it gives them access for maintenance and solves a whole bunch of other problems. And we're starting to see that more and more. I've got to ask, is this something that's being done elsewhere in the world? And the reason I ask that question twofold. One, is there something we can learn from other people? And two, shouldn't <laughs> the way things are going, shouldn't we be the leaders of, of <laughs> designing these kind of products? Well, it's interesting comment there, Branko. Um, if you look at the growth of StormTech, um, the name StormTech is just the merge of stormwater and technology. So despite our success in creating a new market, inventing the shower channel globally, we also championed efficient stormwater surface water removal for mainly residential, um, but it did start with a lot of commercial. And we learnt a heck of a lot about that. And we promoted the idea of efficient linear um, surface water removal that is not what you would call your civil drainage or your cheap hardware store um, plastic channel drains. Uh, we were looking to improve efficiency and improve sustainability. And efficiency would be how we stop debris getting in the drain and how we make sure that that drain is fit for purpose and it can take whatever load will be uh, crossing it. And that sort of info, when we put on the website in, I believe that was 1997 or 1996, uh, that was taken up overseas, interestingly, more rapidly than it was in Australia. So it was a kind of a reverse education. We were unintentionally educating specifiers and consultants overseas. And we ended up um, supplying a large number of projects in the Middle East. So there's a bit of a synergy between the Middle East and Australia. We are a very dry continent and water is precious. Despite the <laughs> excess water <laughs> we have right now, um, water is still precious. So the technologies we developed to make sure you can recapture that water and put it in a place that it needs to be um, stored for reuse um, or cleaned, partially cleaned, gross pollutant traps and so on uh, to be able to be reclaimed or redirected to an area where you want the water to go for the environment somewhere that needs to stay wet. So say like um, a swamp, 
um, area that needs the wet when you do an urban environment, you can often unintentionally drain those areas. And so to keep the biology of those sorts of things going, diverting the water through uh, to where it really needs to go, environmental flows, what people would often know that as. So there's a lot for storm tech to learn. We did not know much about the pedestal paving uh, situation. We're aware of it, um, but an awareness doesn't really impart any knowledge. But for residential, the pedestal paver does represent a, a new change and it's rapidly uh, being adopted in Australia. I don't believe it was an Australian invention. In fact, if you go back in time and anyone that's been to Europe and looked at old Roman baths, you'll find that they actually used that system in a lot of their spas, even though that might be the underside of the, uh, the bathing pools where they had underneath the, uh, the pool, they had a, um, a cavity and slaves would take in burning, I don't know, bales, I can't remember what they were. And they'd heat the water in that way. And then so that they wouldn't get too hot, they would have a raised pedestal within the pool. So the concept and the idea is by no means new, but it's the application of that knowledge. And now we're seeing it solve problems in um, residential building uh, to make the buildings more weatherproof. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, on that point, I mean, water is necessary for life. You said that, you know, we're, we're a dry continent. I believe, I mean, I'm not sure whether it's exactly true, but we have some like 1% of the world's, um, you know, usable, drinkable water in Australia. But water itself can do quite a bit of damage, can't it, um, to uh, you know, whether a commercial or a residential property, really. It's it really, it, it, it's, it's a... It's important for life, but it can also cause a lot of lot of problems, can't it? If, it, if it's unmanaged, that's right. So if you if you look at waterproofing, for example, um, there's a very old saying uh, that pops up again and again. I'm sure I've mentioned it before. Water is the universal solvent. Yeah, give it enough time, it'll dissolve anything. Uh, waterproofing, I think people have a misconception about waterproofing. Um, waterproofing is not your primary means of keeping water out of your house or contained in an area. Waterproofing is the backup. Um, if you were to look at what's the most effective, so for we're talking exterior water penetrating the building, what's the most effective thing? Well, so far it's your roof. Everyone knows the drama of what's going to happen if you have a, a leak in your roof and the damage internally that can cause. And as the water moves off the roof, typically through gutters and downpipes and so on, um, that water needs to be directed around. And then you've got the water that's landing on the ground around the building, and that needs to be directed away. And then you've got the water hitting the side of the building. And again, it needs to be directed away. So if you're looking at a residence with um, just your typical uh, brick um, single skin on the outside, or double brick or whatever, the water that hits those bricks needs to run off the bricks and it will penetrate the bricks. So what do you do? Waterproof? No. You put flashings in and so on. And then you've got the wall floor junctions and again, it's flashings and cappings. And this is where Storm Tech have traditionally lived. 
we capture that water, redirect it as it's needed. Our gratings are typically a GPT, gross pollutant trap. So leaves and debris is typically held at the surface and sediments and so on can flush through um, to an inspection opening or a clear out. So these are critical building elements that are often overlooked. So being someone that, uh, well, at school, I never expected I'd be obsessed by drains, but it's the way it turned out. <laughs> and I've, I've lamented many a time with colleagues, uh, why do people leave the drainage consideration to last? Are you guys nuts? Um, you, you're making a rod for your own back. And it has helped us with innovation, though, um, with people typically forgetting about the drainage, having insufficient drainage and so on, um, it's, it's driven us to come up with solutions uh, to solve these sorts of problems. And typically the solutions are fairly simple, um, but anyone that's in design out there will know this phrase that there is elegance in simplicity. about some of your early commercial projects in Martin Place, Ascot Waters. Um, what have you learned from them and how have you perhaps reapplied them? Okay, Martin Place was a very interesting one. Uh, Martin Place was, uh, so this was in the 90s of the renovation of Martin Place in the mid 90s off the top of my head, uh, where they wanted to use the slot drain, um, one of our first products. And it turned out that the slot drain was okay, but it didn't have the capacity for such a large area given that it was really originally designed as a driveway crossover drain. So what we had to do there is uh, put our big boy pants on and, and really work out what we could uh, get this drain to scale up and do. And so despite this conversation circling around commercial innovation, moving into uh, residential, this was kind of the other way around. It was a residential drain that we scaled up to commercial size and ran it through uh, Martin Place. And that was a huge learning curve for us, particularly on the hydraulics, um, working on that sort of a scale when the hydraulics were significantly greater than what we were intending to use. But our um, uh, education from there was use multiple drains and have redundancy. And what was unique about that was they actually did uh, these big thick pavers and they water jet cut them so that they had holes. You'll see that around um, paved areas that have a tree and a tree surround that's made of stone. They'll drill a lot of holes or water jet, a lot of holes around that to allow the water to get into the, the surface underneath, which would be dirt in that case. Or in our situation, it was the, uh, the slot drain underneath. Now that did give, a, give rise to um, what, uh, one of our most successful products before the shower channel, which was the special assembly, which is a manifold drain. Uh, manifold meaning, you know, many downpipes um in in our application and uh, that education helped us with ascot waters in western australia which was uh the largest it was larger again uh than um martin place 
uh, Ascot Waters was quite low to or very close to the high tide line. And they needed a solution where we can not only get rid of the surface water, but also control rising water. And the special assembly there became a real hybrid product. As far as I know, it is in operation today, but I have not visited that site in quite some time, so I cannot be certain. And the other issue was there was quite high load rates on that. And it really gave us a, a rough and ready um, education about what we can and can't do with surface water and rising water and how to control it, which came down to the expertise of the hydraulics consultants working on that job. They really, oh, we had also sulfur soil uh, that we had to control moisture penetration into and could keep it. We had to keep some soil damp and other soil uh, less damp. So it was, uh, that was um, something way outside of our experience in comfort zone. So as you can imagine, that was a very steep learning curve. Mm. Speaking of which, you guys do a fair amount of product you know, design, evolution, R&D, <clears throat> from commercial and to residential, obviously. Has this process changed over the years? I mean, is there something when it comes to, you know, your new product development, yeah? Is there stuff that you're focusing on now more than you were, let's say, three decades ago? Yes. Um, three decades ago, we were convinced that um, keeping like with like material uh, was the way to go. That was mostly because we were operating out of the back of dad's terrace. We had a workshop the size of my desk here. Um, so we were constrained. So we needed to limit the materials that we were playing with so that we could limit the amount of equipment we needed. And we thought, okay, well, most plumbing, stormwater and sanitary is PVC. Uh, so we'll make our channel conveyance components out of PVC and we'll do our gratings out of stainless steel. Two reasons. One, PVC after 80 years, um, quality PVC, um, fit for purpose, DWV, uh, drain waste vent PVC, um, will, should have a life of about up to 80 years. And after 80 years, it'll be down to about 20% of its original uh, impact strength. Um, so it, it is a durable product, despite it being uh, a relatively cheap commodity. Um, obviously, on the sustainability side, there are issues with PVC, but I think we're Australia, not just StormTech, but Australia overall, is leading the world in the sustainable sourcing and manufacture of PVC. Um, we get audited by the Vinyl Council of Australia and by uh, Global Green Tag. Uh, so we get two audits on our PVC. Australia has best practice vinyl, uh, which means it's uh, responsibly sourced, locally sourced, typically compounded locally, um, ethically as well. The modern slavery covenants impacted us about five years before it hit the media. Uh, so that was, it was nice to be ahead of things <laughs> for a change. Um, and the recycling and the product stewardship of the BBC, we will take the offcuts back. We will even take the packaging back and so on. All the PVC gets reground and turned into new StormTech products. So we have measured, audited, proven a tenth of a percent of our PVC, which is cutting dust from when we cut it to length. 
that ends up in landfill. So it's only a tenth of a percent. On the stainless steel, uh, you, the measurement of waste is so small that we can't actually measure it. Uh, we can have a guess and it might be, I don't know, maybe 10 kilos a year waste of stainless steel because obviously it's a valuable uh, recycler and goes into new stainless steel. So materials was one of our major um, considerations when we first started designing. And that's still the case today. Um, we have an expanded materials range, um, but we've also focused on the longevity of the product. And to us, that was talking quality. Designers and specifiers have guided us on the look of, so where the uh, form follows function kind of people, and then designers and specifiers are the, uh, let's, let's have a new version of that uh, to see if we can improve the look of it for this aesthetic or application. Are you still solving the same problems from 30 years ago, or have we, have we actually reached a dead end in some, some, um, in some concepts? Um, in terms of we can't redesign it any better than we have or we can't go any further? Well, I'll go back to my elegance and simplicity uh, comment from before. We have not, to answer you directly, um, we have not reached a dead end for concepts. good example for that would be, as I mentioned, the pedestal paving uh, solution for... Um, balconies and so on in residential because people need access they want level access out under their balcony or or terrace and a pedestal paving will achieve that but pedestal paving on its own uh, won't give you that because you're still then running the risk of water um, overloading the weep holes of the uh, drainage channels in the door tracks um, and also maintenance is difficult uh, so we've over the last couple of years increasingly integrated uh, a great and a proprietary graded uh, system to work with the pedestal paving and the door uh, so that you get direct access to maintenance to your door and you stop the water getting towards the door. So there's been a fair education process in that. So that's a, an example of the same problem 30 years on, um, but we've evolved and we're still doing the same solution we did 30 years ago um, because there are still situations where that is the ideal solution. And most importantly, for um, those that don't have an endless uh, budget, they can be the more affordable solutions. So that's the second answer to your question is, yeah, we're still using the same solutions from many years ago because they're so very simple and so cost-effective, uh, but we are also um, moving on uh, to solutions that fit the contemporary requirements. This podcast is brought to you by StormTech. For over 30 years, StormTech has been designing award-winning drains that are used worldwide. As an Australian success story, StormTech is the inventor of the linear drain currently used in thousands of applications across the globe. Used in bathrooms, thresholds, driveways, pools and paved areas, StormTech drains are engineered to solve all drainage needs around your home. With seven award-winning great style to choose from, StormTech's full range of drains is available in an array of stunning powder-coated colours and electroplated finishes designed to suit any trend or building style. If you want further information, go to www.stormtech.com.au.
And now back to our podcast. Let's talk about modern commercial project requirements. Um, and by that, I mean sustainability, quality, Australian-made compliance, etc. The, the reason I ask this is because commercial projects themselves have changed. Um, they are, you go, they are obviously, they obviously um, have a different sort of function these days. I mean, if you're in Sydney, for example, we have um, a lot more D DCs, for example. Um, so just wondering, you know, what are some of the modern, you know, project requirements around sustainability and quality and whatnot? Okay, I'll start with sustainability first. Um, commercial construction was the area that was first pushed to move into a Green Star uh, uh, rating system. That has definitely crossed over into residential in many, many, many ways. So commercial sustainability, uh, they were forced to do it. I think if they weren't forced to do it, it wouldn't have happened the way it has. Um, but we are building momentum there. Now, quality to me is inherently part of sustainability. Uh, you can't have one without the other. And the simplest, just the, the simplest, most obvious uh, link between the two is a quality product should be durable. And if it's durable, then it's not going to be replaced, et cetera. So your life cycle assessment is uh, going to reflect that even if it's a high embodied energy on the initial manufacturer, if it's gonna last a thousand years without replacement, then that's a sustainable product. Australian made, um, well, look, I'm a little bit bitter and twisted about this. Uh, you and me both, Troy. <laughs> uh, Dad and I um, wholeheartedly believe in the necessity of Australian manufacture. Mm -hmm. Yes, recently with the supply chain issues, we've seen a lot of retail and industrial um, problems um, simply because we've divested ourselves, we've offshored much of our manufacturing mm -hmm. and now we're just starting to wake up to what's the reality of that risk. Uh, the Sunder Strait, you know, if that gets closed for a couple of weeks, we're running out of just about everything. Um, so Australian, so we've we've been making our products in Australia and exporting around the world um, for ever. Um, Australian manufacturing is a necessity, and I think we have let ourselves down. And people that uh, on a twenty dollar item, people that go for the fifteen dollar item from overseas, um, don't care about Australian made. Uh, whereas I'm happy to pay five bucks to make sure someone else is going to keep making that stuff so that we can get it when we need it again. So I, it's obvious and I'm being, you know, nationalistic and parochial about it. Yes. Um, everyone's sick of me talking about it. Yes. But the reality has smacked us in the face throughout the whole pandemic. Yeah. Us being manufacturer, man, blah, 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 us being an Australian manufacturer. We have had almost zero interruption to supply, except for the problem with, yeah, getting our goods from the factory to site. That's been uh, problematic. We've only had 1% of our product where we do have a component that we uh, buy from offshore. 
and we stocked up on that and we were able to keep supplying that. We stocked up before the pandemic hit, thinking what if, and we were the only supplier left in the industry with stock, so we didn't let anyone down. Um, freight did, uh, unfortunately, you know, drivers going down and everything going crazy. Yes, that, that let people down, but we got our goods out the door. Manufactured in time on full um, was over 99%, so we we're very pleased with that. Now, compliance for Australian-made. I think Australian manufacturing standards need a boot up the bum. Mm -hmm. um, I believe we're lagging. Um, Europe has the sustainability, the, the industrial sustainability credentials that make us look pretty token um, with what we're doing. It's, it's disappointing. We have the opportunity to do it. And I'll lay this squarely on the federal government's lack of leadership in this. And it's not just the current government. Um, you go back 30 years and you'll find Consistent Australian governments just lip serve and aim at election and any um, sustainable compliance is token. And it's irritating to me to the point of distraction. So Australian compliance has a part to play in helping us manufacture onshore and there's all sorts of aspects to compliance. There's, okay, the product's got to be fit for purpose. We all get that. But then how you make it, how you pay people, what conditions they have, intellectual property, what protections do you have? Um, the Australian standards compliance, I think, uh, needs a complete renovation, a real ground-up renovation, including the state to federal link all the way down to local government. Yeah, look, I, I hear Troy. Like, you know, there, there is an election coming up, and I'm I'm just waiting for the very fast train to be pulled to be dusted off, and being told how we're going to build this for a hundred billion dollars, and uh, this the, the same thing we've been doing for thirty five years. But yeah, this the pandemic really has exposed the shortcomings of not having a local domestic. Um, onshore manufacturing industry. Um, Mate, unfortunately, uh, you're right, 100% agree with you. And I hope that there are some people extra that have learnt from it. Um, but depressingly, our fellow countrymen are going to forget about all of that once the supply chains normalise. Yeah. So on that point, um, let's pretend... That we um that we do manufacture locally <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a perfect world, as they say. Do you think it would be more sustainable? And I mean, in terms of material and, and, and manufacturing and, and you know storage and transport, yada yada. If we standardised everything, okay. For, I mean, is that firstly is that even possible? But in terms of what we use. You know, in, in my driveway, we can then go and use down the local industrial park. Um, what we use, you know, in, in in a retail setting, we can use in a skyscraper. Is is that even? Can we even do that? I mean, to I guess minimize the amount of of product that we, we need to make. 
Uh, I, I'm going to sound like a politician here, despite me berating them just before. Um, the simple answer is yes, of course, we can do that. Um, but the more complex answer is Stormtech wouldn't exist if people were going to use the same thing again and again and again. And when you standardise and commoditize and limit the um, options available, that you also limit innovation in construction and design. But on that point, do you think the pandemic has also changed how we design commercial <laughs> workplace? And do you, well, yeah, well, ironically, I just read um, uh, two days ago that people in Melbourne don't want to go back to their offices. They want to work from home. And look, I can fully understand that. I mean, no one wants to be stuck on a, you know, crowded public transport vehicle, doesn't matter, train, tram, whatever bus um don't even talk about the roads um so but assumingly eventually we'll get back to some sort of commercial you know um you know monday to friday environment albeit it may well be more hybridized whether we work from home but do you think that we're we're going to have a change uh, how we design workplaces and how does it actually affect people like or companies like Stormtech? okay uh so Direct answer, yes. Um, there, it has changed commercial workplaces. I uh, was involved in a number of commercial construction uh, projects around Australia, two of them in Melbourne. Uh -huh. And mid-construction, mid-pandemic, they redesigned. Wow. Okay. Yeah, two of them. Two of them. These these are ones that I know directly. You know, they, I had the conversation. They're going they're in touch with us, saying, "Oh, we're making a change, and we're making a change to um, create or to improve the building's use for this pandemic and for future work environments." And so, hybrid um, working is here to stay. Now, for anyone that's got a uni qualification. That's probably the best example of working from home. Yes, it was education, but you went to your tutorials, you went to uh, various lectures and so on, but you did just about everything at home or in the library. Yeah. Um, or my day. I did not go to uni, by the way. I'm, 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 um, I'm just a knucklehead. Um, but that's a you know, fantastic example of you know, centuries of working from home. We've done it. We're used to it. And some people excel and do very well at that. Um, and others make their way through, get their qualification and move on. So I, I see no way that we are going back to the standard nine to five. And mate, just look at the commercial motivation for um, building owners and so on with office high rises that they can fit more tenants in. They can probably increase the square meter rent because, okay, big multinational branded uh, naming rights on a building, they have, you know, of 30 floors, they've got 10 or 20 floors. Well, now they're only going to need five right. floors perhaps. And so they've got the opportunity and they have paid a five by five by five lease or something like that. So they want to try and get out of that if they can. And so the building owners have the opportunity to update their building to increase the number of tenants and they can therefore increase the square meter 
rate potentially. I mean, I'm just, this is my opinion, Branko. I could be completely asked about on this. Um, the other um, aspect is mixed use on those buildings. Okay, this was an office. Let's turn it into a, um, turning them into a residential is not necessarily as simple as people think. And even converting a former hotel to a mixed residential um, hospitality use, again, is not necessarily as simple as people might might think. It's certainly doable, but the costs can spiral out of control. like Stormtech see as a new frontier in terms of commercial water management product design. And I, I'm asking that because, well, firstly, obviously, it's everyone wants to know what's on the horizon, but um, you are pretty much, you know, at the, uh, the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff. So if anyone knows, you know. So what are we going to be seeing, let's say, next year, two, three? Um, you're going to see a, a rapid rise in waste energy recovery systems. Uh, so water contains a lot of energy. Uh, so it can have potential energy, uh, which means it's at the top of a reservoir. And while it's in the reservoir, it has the potential to flow downhill. And do we want to waste that energy? Because it takes a lot of energy to put it up there. Uh, another one is the energy in the either the well, the temperature of the water. So you can use water as a coolant, so you're adding heat to it. And so you're protecting systems and environment uh, that needs to reduce the heat. So you can warm, run water through it, warm up the water, circle it round and run it back again. Uh, the other one is taking heat out of the water and using that heat somewhere else. So you've got the waste heat recovery systems that are becoming more and more popular, mainly in the passive house area but i've seen um, a marked increase in the number of people that are inquiring about waste heat recovery systems and so far we're running two uh, field tests and so far the uh, measured results which are not a lab this is empirical result from jobs on site um, the estimate is around a genuine 30 percent decrease in energy use wow can't, yeah if once we get the numbers fully in there's a hint that it might be significantly more than that. Oof, that's mm. serious. Mm. Uh, by financial saving, there's obviously a saving on carbon emissions, there's a saving on a whole lot of other things. That's actually great, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the other one that we're going to see a, a huge change in is how we're handling all this um, weatherproofing of the buildings, keeping the water out. And we're going to be using a lot of... You will see a lot of old school, um, ancient construction techniques reinforced that we've drifted away from over the last 30 years. And uh, I think you'll see a lot of uh, water diversion methods, mm -hmm. reducing the necessity of uh, very expensive one-off uh, waterproofing systems. So the waterproofing you'll see will become the secondary system uh, to stop water and then that water being guided can then be collected and efficiently handled, either put back into the environment or reused. That's what we need, Troy, a lot more uh, Roman aqueducts. I was yeah. going to say, 
Um, we don't have enough of those in Australia. But a high-speed Roman aqueduct, then? Yes, a very high-speed. Hundred billion dollars worth of high-speed Roman aqueduct. <laughs> oh dear, yeah, you know, it's it really it's sad. Um, you know, every time that these these politicians have an opportunity to make infrastructure, make more jobs, and also make Australia work better or function better, rather. They blow it, you know, for the Olympics, you know, we could have basically had a rail line going from central all the way out to bloody Whoopal. So what did they do? They, they put one little spur off Lidcombe to go yeah. to Olympic Park. I mean, really? Um, we have have a pandemic. We're throwing squillions, trillions of dollars at it. Wouldn't it have been better to have done some sort of, you know, large infrastructure project? You know, we get manufacturing, we get companies such as yours being you know, being able to sell more product, you get to employ more people, more taxes are getting paid, and voila, we have infrastructure. Yes, maybe you and I should be politicians. Maybe. Well, mate, there's one I read uh, just today. This is one for all the designers out there, intellectual property for business. Uh, reports come out that in Australia, businesses that invest in intellectual property are two to three times more, well, uh, generally, grow two to three times faster than those without intellectual property and they double in size far quicker than those without and that's big and small business um we're a we're a little tiny family business and i spend a lot of money on ip um and it's certainly proven correct i mean i learned that lesson from dad it wasn't my own my own idea um and that's where government can come back in you want to spend some money mr government Support Australian innovation and business with the IP. Yeah, I agree. So on that point, what are some of the latest and most innovative building materials that we are, we're seeing being used in the commercial sector that you're actually coming across? Because, I mean, I know I see, I get press releases and stuff, you know, being sent to me all the time. And, yes, you're right, there are some ye olde things that are, <laughs> that are making their, their comeback. But what's something that you're seeing that, that's, that's maybe new or old and new again? Okay, uh, so in sanitary wear, um, the right, so right here, um, I investigated about 12, 13 years ago, uh, particle vapor deposition coating process. Mm -hmm. um, that was a process that was developed back in the early 70s for high-speed tooling, so those drill bits and so on mm -hmm. um, that, are, that have got a gold plate on them. Well, that's typically that would be titanium nitride, and that's very hard and they use that in high-speed machining so they can use less lubricant and run the, the machining processes faster, increasing efficiency. Uh, we've seen that particle vapour deposition, everyone would know it as PVD. Uh, we've seen that morph into the sanitary industry um, more and more and more. And I've been trying to get this for my uh, drains in Australia for a very long time. Surface Technologies down in Melbourne were the champions of it, uh, Sutton, uh, the drill people. Um, and now you'll find most of the uh, tap manufacturers have a PVD option because it's incredibly durable. Uh -huh. It's very environmentally friendly and it is attractive. You can use different alloys to create a different finish. And so you'll see the rise of that. Uh, so once Australia gets better infrastructure, more capacity in PVD, you'll see that uh, explode. And then we're also talking, while we're on 
surface technologies, there are coding technologies. So right now, the car industry in Australia has fallen away because, again, lack of leadership from the government is my opinion, and kowtowing and bowing to multinationals that simply don't care. Um, the hopefully with the EV rise in Australia, we can start manufacturing again, and then that's going to put push us back to surface coating technologies, and that's where Australia can pick up the ball. And you have e-coat, um, PVD, a variety of new coating systems, and they will find their way both in and out of our construction sector. Wall claddings, uh, the big uh, aluminium uh, panels for facades and so on, um, all these surface coating technologies that have been around, gone away, come back, and there are some new evolving ones as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's where we're going to see some significant changes. But, like, I mean, that's only because I'm a little bit obsessed with that. Well, it's good to be obsessed. So what are you saying? It's um, powder coatings, the old world technology? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Powder coating's got its place. It's like you're saying, you know, in, in you know, how's our design changed over the years? How, you know, what are we still designing in the same way well powder coating has a wonderful place um it's it's another vinyl um it's incredibly durable um it's relatively cost effective um but over the years we've found that there are some significant issues with the safety of applicators um the energy intensiveness of it um we might see an evolution in things like anodizing um, for aluminium, I mean, anodizing is fundamentally just force growing the aluminium oxide and putting a color in it. Uh, so there's a lot further we can go with that. Um, we've got a, um, okay, I'm going to tease everyone, Branko. Okay. Um, we've got something really new and really exciting coming out. Um, so in the next three to four months, people will start to find out about it. And that is using technology we've developed um, that we own um, and globally, mind you. Okay. Well, that does sound interesting. I guess we'll be talking about that eventually again, and I, and I, and I do look forward, forward to it. Troy Creighton, Managing Director of StormTech, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Branko. It's always good having a chat, mate. Stay safe out there. Um, take an umbrella or four. Um, <laughs> um, we shall talk again, sir. Excellent, Franco. Look forward to it, mate. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melodic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.